Hey there, I'm Robbie Carmen from MixingLight.com, and welcome to another edition of our free podcast series featuring profiles from some of the world's most interesting, unique, and top colorists. Along with my Mixing Light partners, Patrick Inhofer and Dan Moran, we'll be interviewing colorists who work in all genres with different experience levels and all with unique insights into the world of color grading. This podcast series is all about the person, the colorist, and understanding what drives them, how experiences on projects have informed their style, and what advice they give to those who are new to grading. In this Colorist Profile episode, we're super excited to have Colorist, Nice Guy, and the managing editor of the Tau of Color newsletter, which of course is Mixing Light's sister site, Jim Wicks. Based in West Palm Beach, Florida, and the senior colorist at Olympusat, Jim's work runs the gamut from features, commercials, and long-form broadcast work, and a very cool niche in the grading world, color restoration. His varied experience in production and post give him a unique view into the world of grading. So without further delay, Jim, how are you doing? Hey, Robbie, good to be with you. I'm really excited to talk to you. Ever since I, I first met you and uh, you know, uh, found you know, all the work that you were doing to sort of help the colorist community with posting links that were interesting to colorists and all that kind of stuff, I've always wanted to dive a little further uh, into talking to you. And if you remember a year or two ago at NAB, I kind of cornered you and wanted to, know, <laughs> wanted to know everything you knew about color restoration. So I'm glad to, glad to finally have you on. But as we begin, Jim, um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? How did, you know, what's your background? How did you get into grading and that kind of thing? I've been grading since about 2007. And prior to that, um, I started in motion pictures uh, and television as an uncredited production assistant, basically a gopher. Um, uh, I worked on Jack Nicholson movies uh, that were shot in Toronto. I, I, my first movie was uh, The Last Detail with Jack Nicholson. I worked on some television series uh, that were shot in Toronto. And then um, I, I got married and was looking for a more steady paycheck. Um, and a friend of mine suggested, hey, you know, um, you, you've got a great voice for radio. Uh, <laughs> well, why don't you why don't you try uh, that? Or and and that led into television. So I I I sort of took a detour for about uh, twenty years uh, as as a TV journalist, and the whole while um, trying to find my exit so I could get back to uh, post production and production. Okay. Um, once I left um, that world. Uh, I, I went in as a uh, producer-director of uh, TV commercials, won awards, racked up uh, a bunch of very happy clients. Mm -hmm. And that is where I found color correction, uh, was, was, you know, taking a look at, at uh, some of my commercials and, and several, several that had won awards and, and put them up against national spots. And, you know, it was very clear that the difference was the lack of color correction. Okay. Um, so I, I apprenticed with a, a colorist up in Canada um, <clears throat> by the name of Jack Tunnicliffe, who owns mm -hmm. Java Post. Mm -hmm. And my wife had actually introduced me to Jack's work. I didn't really know about Jack, except that um, uh, she was a fan of a, a TV show, a comedy series called uh, Corner Gas. Okay. And, you know, I'm going through the credits at the end of the show. It was, it was, it was a lovely show, and it looked very different from most other shows I had seen. Mm -hmm. And saw that uh, Jack was the, uh, was the credited colorist. I uh, got in touch with him and, um, you know, spent some time up at his shop and uh, studied with him. And, and I was greatly encouraged. Uh, he, he, was a, he was a mentor to me in my, in my early, uh, early years. 
And then um, I was this close, Robbie, this close to leaving West Palm Beach. I've lived here for about 15, 20 years. Uh, this is where my wife and I raised our kids and, you know, got them off and, and you know, they're doing their thing. Sure. But I wanted to be a colorist full time. I could, I, I literally, once I, once I discovered color grading, uh, uh, being a director, winning awards meant nothing to me. It was all color all the time. What was it, you know, do you remember when that sort of Nirvana moment happened to you and you were doing all this great commercial work and you were producing these great pieces? Yeah. Besides comparing your work to other pieces that were around there, and obviously you said that, hey, it was the, it was the color correction that was missing. Yeah. What was it about when you first, when you think back to when you first started pushing pixels around on screen or, or adjusting a TBC or whatever it was at the time, what was it to you that got you hooked, do you think? It was... It was the ability to take an image and make it better. To if the if the message was strong, and the message being, you know, um, in, in my case, I was I was grading commercials or adverts for 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 my uh, European friends. Um, when I was grading them, the message was strong, the production was strong, but the color added something. Didn't take away, added something. And at the time. At the time, I remember, uh, I think I was using Apple Color at the time, and it was, there, there was a feeling of, yeah, this, yeah, this pops. And when we were done, um, I mean, I was doing this, I was doing this without the knowledge of, um, I was working, I was in charge of commercial production for the CBS affiliate in West Palm Beach. Okay. And so, you know, that's where I was housed and, uh, you know, I had my crew there. But I was doing the color correction without anyone's knowledge, hmm. not even the clients. But people were saying, people were saying, what is it about your commercials that people just love? I wasn't about to tell them. I mean, they'll know now. <laughs> sure. But, but once, once I, I dived in, it literally, it, it was something I could not put down. Every time I thought, I'm done, that would last for about two seconds. And then I would pick up something else. Something else would drive me. I mean, it literally is a passion. Um, I've never felt this focused, this alive in all the years that I've been in this crazy business. So um, you mentioned that, you know, when you're back up in Canada, you did, um, you admired this colorist up there, you admired his work and spent some time with him. Um, would you classify that as sort of formal training? Did you do an apprenticeship with him? How, how did that work? Were you just kind of, you know, here and there asking him questions? Oh, no. I mean, I, 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 spent, I spent time with Jack. Um, and, and I told him flat out, I mean, look, tell me if you don't think I'm any good at this. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, I, seriously, I, I yeah. don't want to, I, I don't want to spend time doing something that I'm not good at. Uh, and that's, that's just been the way I've done my whole career. Um, no, uh, Jack, Jack was very clear. He, he told me I've got an eye for color and he said that I had a great grasp of this. So I just, I, I dove off. That was the, that was the, the license to thrill, so to speak. It was just yeah. like, okay, I got permission. Boom, I'm gone. Um, when I train, uh, I, I train at, at Olympiasat, I've trained colorists and, and we have, uh, we have tours come through where, you know, people want, people will come in and they'll, uh, they'll get a tour of the color suite and mm -hmm. what we're doing with uh, film restoration and some of the other commercial and reality TV series that I work mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. And they'll, one of the first things I'll do, I'll do a before and after. 
and I'll, 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 I'll say, okay, I'll take the, I'll disable the grades. And yep. I'll say, okay, what do you see here? I'm just curious. What do you see? And it's really rare when you have somebody come in and go, oh yeah, there's too much red here or, oh, there's too much green. Yeah. Um, I can't emphasize this enough. It's it's having an eye for color. It's, yeah, no, yeah, I agree. I mean, we, you know we, what I'm saying? I do, I do, and actually, we, you know, we've done uh, a number of these um, these colors profile episodes, and that's a it's a recurrent theme to everybody that I talk to about this. Right? Is that um, I think um, somebody put it. I think it was Alexis Van Herken who put it. You have to learn how to see. You know, and a lot oh, of uh, and a lot of a lot of folks out there, they just kind of go. They don't really know how to see, like you know, like that we do. And that's a. I think that's an interesting an interesting part of it for sure. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I don't think it really matters whether you sit down in front of a resolve unit or whether you sit down in front of a baselight unit. It really doesn't matter. What matters is do can you see what most other people cannot see? Can you see, can you see what's not supposed to be there? And then can you imagine how it should look? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. You, you know you're really walking two sides. So that's that's really where I was at when I was thinking about leaving West Palm Beach, and then. Um, I was thinking I had to go to New York or L.A. to to practice my trade. I mean, I knew that I could do it. I was doing it in the early years. And I thought, okay, fine. The kids were grown and gone. My wife said, well, if, you know, uh, if that's really what you think we should do. <laughs> um, but and, th- and that's when that's when I got a call way out of the blue uh, from a very good friend of mine who uh, was a director that I'd worked with on a number of indies. And he saw he saw that um, Olympus App was looking for a senior colorist, and uh, we got together. And hey, who who knew? I didn't have to move. Um, so I want to ask you all about Olympus App and the color restoration work, and then you guys do that. But I have a couple other background questions for you before we get into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I ask this question to everybody who who appears on these episodes, and it's a it's a funny uh, funny answer that I get usually from people. So I'll ask you this: Let's just hypothetically say you're at a party. Right, and you're you know you're sitting there mingling, having a drink or something, talking to people, um, and you're meeting somebody for the very first time, and they and they and they ask you what you do for a living. What 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 do you say? I make magic. <laughs> That's a good one. I haven't heard that one before. I like that. I I used to say when I first became a colorist, um, what I used to say I, I, in that situation, and that situation happened a few times. Until I kind of woke up to it and said, well, I'm not saying colorist anymore. So then what I do say now is that I'm a digital colorist of motion pictures and television. Okay. And And people usually pick up on that? Well, they don't pick up on digital or colorist, but they'll pick up on motion pictures and television. They go, oh, that's interesting. Um, What what exactly do do you do? And I said, well, I work with the director or the cinematographer and or the, you know, if it's a commercial, the creative agency. And... You know, I help make, uh, I, I help in the storytelling of, of their project, whatever it is, to make it more pleasing for, you know, their purposes and also to make it more enjoyable for you as a viewer. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So if you were thinking about this in your head and you're, you know, again, sort of along the same lines, explaining to what somebody what you do and uh, even somebody who's remotely interested in the idea of color, what do you think are... I don't know some of the the technical skills, the personality traits. How would you how would you go about sort of designing a perfect colorist? You know, somebody who wants to get into this. How would you instruct them uh, about things to learn and things to watch out for? Is it you know is it getting into photography and art? Is it watching a lot of movies? What what is it that you could tell somebody 
that is essential to have as skills, you know, multiple skills, whether they be technical or aesthetic, to get into color? One of the skills that I would I would suggest, and you've touched on a lot. I mean, I I, I fully advocate. You know, you have to be a fan of movies, particularly yeah. you know restoration of old movies. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very few people that enjoy black and white movies who are who call themselves colorists. Right. Um, right. But there is a, a huge fan base uh, among viewers for black and whites. So unless you like watching black and white movies unless you can appreciate three-strip Technicolor or two-strip Technicolor or color or you name it. Unless you can appreciate where we've come from, right. then you can't, you, I, you're going to have a more difficult time of wrapping your head around this job. But um, so so definitely being a fan of motion pictures and, and uh, the history of it, is a good thing. But one of the skills, aside from an eye for color, uh, I tell people that this is a very, this is a very slow, painstakingly uh, accurate position. So things don't happen super quick. You know, oh, let's lay down that grade. Hey, you got a preset for that? All right, let's move on. That doesn't happen, at least in my color suite. My color suite, we take our time and 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 not where the client, not where the client is paying more. Client pays on average what we, you know, what they would pay anywhere in the business, but they get a better, they get a better uh, uh, product, I believe, from us because we take the time to just slow down. Let's analyze this. Let's what is it that you want to accomplish here? If it's a client coming in with a with a brand new production. Being able to understand and convert their words. Well, it's got to be more like this, and it's got to do this. Translating words into color is a definite mm. key. Mm. But on the other hand, analyzing older films, a- analyzing, you know, you know, in my case, the directors, the crew, the producers, cinematographer, they're all long gone. Right. So I've got to analyze the film and, and without the without any input from a, a living member of the crew, be able to analyze this time capsule and go, was this a film noir? Was this a musical? Uh, where were they going with this? How were they dealing with lights and shadows? How were they dealing with you know, color or black and white? So taking the time to understand what it is the film or the client needs uh, I, I think it's a huge skill. You mentioned a couple times now, and I'll, I'll segue into this, this idea of uh, film restoration. And I got to tell you, Jim, I am fascinated by this. You know, I, I was joking earlier when we first started talking about how I cornered you at NAB and wanted to ask you a million <laughs> questions about this. For those of you who don't really know what I'm referring to, um, one of the things that Jim does that I, th- I think is immensely exciting is he takes old films um, that are in various states of disrepair, right? Some of them oh, actually, yeah. some of them actually have to be, you know, surgically repaired and put back together in a lab and all that kind of stuff. But at, at that point, Jim then gets the film and he's got to go back and restore this. I mean, it could be that things are, uh, you know, have dirt on them or pink or whatever. Jim, tell, give us the the, the fifty thousand foot view of that process, and then let's dive in a little bit more into some of the nitty-gritty of how that's done okay um well first of all let's clear up uh, uh something you said i don't okay. res- i don't restore the film the films uh when they come to us uh they're scanned to 2k currently okay. uh we're moving to 4k gotcha but they're scanned from 35 millimeter to 2k and they're uh uncompressed dpx 
Okay. And so when the films are in the DPX realm, the digital realm, we have a restoration team, uh, about 40 people or so, that work on uh, work on the film. They use uh, DaVinci Revival. Okay. And uh, so that's like scratch removal. Oh, uh, dirt scratch, removal. Listen, scratch removal. They they stitch the frames back together. They gotcha. Um, you know, depending on and, and again, it depends on the quality of the of the negative or the the print that we're getting. Um, I'd rather work on. I, I think we'd all rather work on negatives, but or from negatives. But um, however, the film comes to us. Uh, the the restoration team does their best to to make it look as close to new as possible. Then they send it to me. I'm probably the last step. Um, there's color, then there's audio restoration. And then once all that's done, uh, they, the films are put back together, video and audio, and then segmented for commercials for broadcast across the United States and into South America. And then also there's a second where they're not segmented, but they're uh, conformed for Blu-ray. Okay. So uh, when they come to me, um, I have the 2K 35-millimeter scan sitting in front of me. And one of the first things I do, because we're broadcasting in 1080 and because of the aspect ratio, a lot of the films back in the day were shot with an enormous amount of headroom uh, that was wasted. Uh, and when I say wasted, I mean that there's, there's just nothing going on for the for the top third of the frame. Hmm. So I can I can to varying degrees do a uh, a brief pan and scan and and calculate each scene so it fits the 16 by 9 aspect ratio. Gotcha. So that's one of the first things I do after that um I'm analyzing the film to see where to see where uh the, there's some color opportunities you know if it's a color film um, I have no idea whether they shot on Kodak mm -hmm. um, or if they shot on Fuji. I have no. Sometimes what happens is a lot of these films, <clears throat> they the crew ran out of film, and so they would grab the first, and, which is a major no-no. But right. but I can understand you ran out of film. You just you, you're hot in production. You got the crew, the cast. You just grab whatever you can. You lace up the camera, and away you go. Well, you know, you've now got a different lot die. You've now got different, uh, you know, uh, particulars with with that type of film. So I go through to analyze what I've got, how I'm going to work, whether I'm going to use LUTs, whether I'm just going to, whether this is going to be an easy grade, whether it's going to be difficult. Um, analyze the opticals, such as the, the titles or the transitions, to see how they've, they're the first to go that I, at least I've found in these films, the opticals are the first to go, so I analyze those, and then start to pull the color out. The color's there. I mm -hmm. need to pull it out and to see how I can manipulate the colors to get back into conformity the way they were when they were first seen, whether in the 1950s or the 1960s or onward. Let me ask you a couple questions related to this. The, the main uh, genre, if you will, I think you mentioned this to me before, these are um, classical Mexican films, is that correct? Yeah, these are classic films from uh, Mexico, mostly. Okay. Um, I started, when I started Olympusat, we had, um, I built the color suite uh, along with our IT, um, our mm -hmm. CTO. And uh, he and I, you know, put together, a, I believe, a really kick-ass color suite. One of the things we did was when I started, we had one film catalog 
Uh, I now manage seven, and oh, that's wow. growing. Wow. And not just from Mexico, from other other areas, but they're Spanish Spanish language films. Gotcha. Um, for the most part, the the Mexican films, some have huge footprints in film history. Um, these are films that won Boku Awards back in the day, starred, you know, Mexico's versions of uh, Elizabeth Taylor and and Rock Hudson and so on and so forth. Hmm. So while we were having the golden era of Hollywood cinema, they were having the golden era of Mexican cinema. So I've, I, you know, I've done Louis Brunel films. I've done um, a, a number of very famous films. Um, but I've also done a fair amount of films that have a minor footprint, if any footprint, in film history. Mm -hmm. So, again, just analyzing every film so that each film gets its own treatment. Uh, every film deserves TLC um, and needs to be brought back. Uh, some take a lot more work than others. So that's what I do. So, so you know, when you're starting, you sit down, you have these, you know, these CPX scans, the film's been repaired, scratches have been repaired, that kind of stuff, and you're ready to do your thing. I guess the part that fascinates me the most, and you, you alluded to this earlier, is that a lot of times, you know, in the majority, probably 99.9% .9 of the cases, the filmmaker, the director, the DP, the people who are on set are, are long gone, right? You don't have them to consult right. with and ask them, hey, what was this day like? You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so... What are you using for reference slash inspiration to kind of get a scene or a film uh, into the right place? Is it that you're going back and researching this filmmaker's previous work and sort of know their sort of color palette and their tolerance for exposure and things of that nature? Or are you kind of just using your best, you know, your eye and your best reference to get the, the scene or the film in the right place? Um, actually, the answer is both. Uh, you're, you're correct on both fronts. Um, I do research. I use IMDb. Um, I have books at home on, on movies. Um, but my greatest resource, I mean, I love movies. I, I always have. Um, you know, I've been going to the movies ever since um, I can remember. I mean, I, was, I can't even remember how old <laughs> but, but the thing is that um, uh, my greatest resource will be the Internet. And, you know, researching the director or researching, you know, this a particular film um, and then doing the very best. But mostly and this may sound like an oxymoron, but I, but I say this I, I say this a lot to, to some key people. Listen to the film. The film will tell you where it wants to go. I mean, if uh, if if you're getting a film noir, uh, I've, I've done I've done a number of film noirs for Mexico, and and think about this. Back in the day, you know, Orson Welles was doing Citizen Kane. He was doing uh, uh, you know all, all his classic movies, Lady from Shanghai, so on and so forth, and he had a certain look, no doubt. Um, but because of the proximity of Los Angeles and Mexico City, and because you know there, there were. It, it, there was a creative highway going on. And so one was borrowing from the other and it was a two-way street. So, you know, you analyze, you analyze this, the, the film in front of you and you, you get a sense of what the director was after, but you get that based on the film. A film noir is not going to be a happy musical. Right, you know? right, right, if, right. But if, if you listen to the film, and, and you follow the film through, which is, you know, I play the reels through just to get a sense. And I go, okay, I got an idea. And usually in my case, these films, most of the films 
seemed to settle down into a color palette um, uh, but midway through. Mm. And once I figure out, oh, this is where you want to live. Okay, fine. Then I just, I, I'll, I may grade from the middle out. I may grade from the end forward or from the forward to the, the end. I, I don't have to work in a linear mode. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. So, you know, I think that um, one of the things that might be a little hard for a lot of people listening to get their head around, right, is that we're, we live in such a client-driven industry, right, that, you know, I sit there and the, there's a client behind me going, make it blue, make it green, make it darker, right? How, how do you balance that, right? Because, you know, in essence, your client or, you know, the, the DP, the director are long gone. How are you handling sort of the review process, the QC process? Is there somebody there? Do you have an in-house producer that's saying, hey, Jim, you know, maybe we should make this more saturated? Or, or is it kind of just um, uh, an act of just going over the film again and again and again and refining to your personal taste? How does that work for you guys? Um, well, it works mainly. Uh, we, we do have QC all the way along. Um, you know, we have an editor who... Uh, when he recompiles the 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 movie back with the video and the audio that are now cleaned up and color restored and the film is restored, he'll come to me and he'll he'll talk to me about issues that he may you know he may see. Hey, is there a way you could redo this and redo this scene? We we have a totally um, open communication throughout the whole process. Um, you know, we we have restoration artists talking with color, color talking with audio, audio talking with. Uh, editors, it, it it goes on that way. But I mean, look, I I'm the senior colorist and the manager of film restoration services at Olympia Set, but you know I've got bosses too. So you know when they come in, they they may have a hey, I like the look of this, or is 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 there some is there is there a change you might want to make here, or what do you what do you think? Uh, so it's open communication all the way through. So how, um, you know, the, one of the things that's also fascinating to me about this is you, you, know, you talked about, you know, sort of letting the film speak to you and guiding your decisions, your creative decisions in terms of color palette and that kind of stuff. Um, based on your knowledge of film history and these directors and that kind of stuff, do you, um, does the, the, the era and the, the genre that are, maybe it's a, a Western, maybe it's a film noir, as you mentioned, um, how much does sort of the history of these types of film influence the aesthetic decisions you make? Do you, in other words, do you go back and look at other examples of that era and go, oh, okay, well, I can't go, you know, crazy with this because this was the general type of look that people did for this type of film. Does that make sense? Oh, it, it does make sense because um, uh, I, I just watched, um, which film was it? I just watched From Russia With Love and Goldfinger on the um, uh, Blu-ray Restored. And <clears throat> the, it, was a beautiful, it was a beautiful film. Uh, both of them were beautiful films. But they had a color palette that was absolutely color perfect for that time in the, right, in the early right. 60s. Right. And so when I see a film from Mexico that comes in from the early 60s, um, I don't try and say, well, you know, I think I'm going to put my own stamp on it. I, yeah, yeah. I feel like today I'm going to do something like this. Again, it comes down to what does the film want? But as you grade, as you restore the color, it is, it is fundamentally absolutely amazing to me that the, that the color of the film will go a certain way and you go wow i didn't see that coming and and so it, after a while you start to listen and you say okay in the six in the early 60s there was a certain type of look 
by the late 60s, early 70s, we're, you know, the, we're, we're now into disco, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's there's a certain look. In the 80s, there's a certain look. And again, you know, the, the color palette of Star Wars doesn't work on Star Trek. <laughs> right, and the right, color right, palette right. of Star Trek doesn't work on Back to the Future. Sure. Every film has its own color palette because, in large part, it you know, the color's there to help the filmmakers tell the story, but it's also there because that's what that film needed. I mean, so it seems to me that, you know, not only are you a colorist, you're essentially a little bit of a film historian as well, right? Like, oh, absolutely. You're, you know, and, that, and that's, and that's the, the thing that I think that I talk to a lot of young colorists about is they're like, how do I develop my style? How do I develop my look, you know? And it seems on these particular projects, you're doing a little bit of that, but what's really fascinating, and, and pardon this phrase, you probably heard it too many times, is that you're a little bit like the film whisperer. You know, you're sort of, <laughs> you're kind of, you're kind of, you know, you're in touch with what the the genres were like. You're in touch with what the 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 time frame was like, what other people were doing in terms of looks, and then you're applying a little bit of your own aesthetic to that. And I think that's a really fascinating balance because I think a lot of young colorists just want to do lots of fancy things, right? Like, I, I would see a lot of people. Taking potentially these films that you work on and doing just things that are not not appropriate for the film, right? Doing you know crazy oversaturated looks and bleaches and all sorts of stuff when that's not what, as you said, not what the film is is telling you, which is just fascinating to me. That's really cool. To your point, the thing is, I could put my own stamp on it. Mm-hmm. The thing is that I'm really not there to put my own stamp on it. What I'm there to do is to bring the film back to life. Up to, I have a line, up to the line where it was seen when it was first displayed. In other words, what was the vision of the director? That's where I want to go. Mm-hmm. Not cross it. I, I, I've got a I've got a 1956 film where the it, it, when I when I show um, when I show people when they come through, a woman in the scene is wearing a red robe. I said I could change that. You know, I could change that to a blue robe or a pink robe or whatever else I wanted to change. But my job is not to do that. My job is to color restore it to where it used to be. Once you find black, once you find white, um, you know, you go searching for what I call the middle ground. You start looking for other colors. How is this playing out? In a black and white film, you know, you can go, you can go too black. Mm, you yeah, can go totally. too black in the shadows. Even yeah. in a film noir, um, you can go too black. But in a musical, it's funny, in a black and white musical, um, the, the, the shadows or the blacks are happier. And they're, they're, it's a lighter, a lighter shade as opposed to a darker film noir shade. Yep. Um, and every film gets treated differently. I wish there was a preset, could speed up the process instantly. But, you know, you do these things scene by scene, you handcraft all this color to come back, I mean, it's it's a love that you that you put into it. And some days you don't feel that love. It's like, oh my God, what am I going to do with this scene? But when you see, you know, I'm not working on an individual scene that by itself isn't that gorgeous. That individual scene has to fit within the the whole image of the scene, of the film, of the real. And, and you you start to pull back and you go, you know, by itself. It was okay, but it fits beautifully within this whole dynamic 
picture palette of of what the uh, director had. Well, that's actually a related question because I, I get the idea of bringing the the film or the scene. Let's just use a scene back to where it should be, right? And exercising some level of restraint, not to, you know, as you said, not change the color of the robe, not in add in you know crazy gradients in the skies, whatever may the case may be. But what do you do when? You get a scene back to about where you think it probably was originally and still look at the scene and go, well, that's not that great. I could really enhance this. I mean, do you, do you, do you leave it or do you go in and go, even though it's not a really good scene, I could, I could enhance it a little bit more? I mean, like, that seems like a fine balancing point or, you know, I, I would have a hard time exercising that restraint because when I look at something and I know it can be better, I want to make it better. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Um, it is a fine line that we walk. The thing is that you do walk this fine line, and it would be really easy to go in and say, you know what, this guy needs a grade, so let me just do this. And and I'll be honest with you, uh, sometimes um, uh, an old old film from the fifties. There was a uh, there was a film that I did from the fifties where shot in color. Um, and you could clearly see that on the wide shot, it was a scene between uh, two or three people, but there was a wide shot outdoors. And in the wide shot, beautiful blue sky, puffy white clouds. But on the close-ups and the reversals, they were all shot on a gray sky. So as as you look at it, there was this, there was a, what I call the blink factor. It was like, boom, boom. It, was, it was like a blinking light. Blink, yes, blink, blink, so, blink. something was off, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, and it was the sky. It was driving me crazy. In that case... I went in and helped massage it, so I was able to I was able to create a uniform look across that whole scene. But you're doing that more for flow rather than specific style points, right? In oh, other absolutely. words, and in, in other words, you didn't want it to be distracting to the viewer, so you made those you know the the close up and the reversal add a little blue to the sky. But you wouldn't necessarily take a scene that let's say all the skies were uniform gray. You wouldn't go in there and say, "Hey, I'm going to make this nice and saturated and blue." because that would take away from the original look of the film. Absolutely. If, if, if it was shot that way, then it was shot that way. But, you know, in the case where you're just helping it along a little bit, I don't have a problem with that. Well, does, so, so does the techniques that you use on restoring these films, and you're, obviously your knowledge of film in general, does that, um, does that, is that arm you? Does that give you a toolbox or a toolkit to approach the modern projects? Do you find that because you're trying to emulate a lot of these techniques from yesteryear, that it, you can just real quick just plug that into a modern project and try different things? Or is it one of those things where when you get to a modern project, you want to forget all the old stuff and just do something totally new? Oh, no, no. Um, to me, um, <clears throat> to anyone, I, I, I play music by ear. So th this may not make sense to anyone, but it's a little bit like picking up a guitar and playing an acoustic guitar. It, you, uh, to me, I play it one way. When I pick up a, an electric guitar, I play it another way. But the basis is still the same. I'm playing the guitar. The chords are still the same. I strum, but I play it differently, if you know what I mean. And the same with, you know, I, I, I play keys and bass as well. So no matter what instrument I'm on, I, I get, you know, I, I play music. And that's the common denominator across all the instruments. Well, it's the same with, with color grading an old film or something new that was shot new. I'm still color grading. I don't throw away anything. If the film calls for an old style look, yeah, I'm happy to, I'm happy to use it. If, if it looks for something new and exciting and vibrant, I'm happy to do that too. It's whatever 
the client wants, but whatever also to balance that with what the film needs. Um, so last question for you, and I've asked this again of all of our, all of our uh, contributors here in the Colors Profile series. Mm -hmm. What's the future of grading? I mean, where do you think we're going to be aesthetically and technically in 10 years? Is it going to be one of those things where, you know, you just look at the screen and, and you know, the pixels just make themselves happen? Or, <laughs> or you know, yeah, aesthetic man, we're all going to have Google Glass. <laughs> we're going to sit in front of our computers and think. Uh, or, or, think or, yeah, well, that would be pretty cool. Or, and aesthetically as well, I mean, do you think that, you know, it's going to be a constant cycle as it has been ever since I've been in this game of just kind of reviving looks and recycling them and developing them. Uh, in your opinion, what, what do you think the future of grading? Where, where are we going to be in 10 years with this stuff, do you think? I think, I, I think that it, within 10 years, I think in the next 10 years, you're going to see um, colorists are, I believe that we're more important than ever before to the, um, the aesthetic uh, feel and flow of a motion picture or a television show. We work very closely with cinematographers. Uh, we interpret a director's look. Um, you know, we we work we work hand in glove with uh, some of the some of the best of the best. So the the I, I just see us uh, as colorists working more so with them. Um, I, I believe that we're we're in a position where we can take. We can take images that, that come to us and we can help. I don't believe that we will ever, I, and I don't think we should ever uh, be the, hey, look at me. I, that movie would have been nothing without the colorist. I don't ever want to see that happen. Uh, what I want to see happen is that the cinematographer and the colorist, um, you know, are, are happy working together, that the director calls on the, on, on the colorists. Um, I think I think the future of of what we do is, is is going to be as different in 10 years as it was 10 years ago when, you know, we, we were all doing this. Well, Jim, thank you so much for an awesome conversation. I know our members here at Mixing Light are going to find this to be a fascinating conversation. And uh, I don't know, at least I was I, I could go on and on and on and on talking to you for another hour or two about this. But I know you need to have a life and get back to reality. So really great stuff. Um, before we close, just tell us where people can find out more information about about you. In, in your company? Well, Olympusat is uh, online, uh, www.olympusat, O-L-Y-M-P-U-S-A-T.com. Uh, we're based in West Palm Beach with offices uh, in Los Angeles, New York, uh, Mexico City, Europe. Um, we're headquartered here in West Palm, or you can go to my website, uh, jimwicks.com, and you can see some of the before and after videos. Um, Robbie, before we go, if you have a moment, what I'd like to do is encourage all color, especially especially the younger ones coming up. Um, I, I think I think you gals and guys are, are going to do great things with color. But if I could, I would just like to say, take a look at the old stuff. Take a look at old TV shows, old movies, uh, black and white and color. Don't turn your eyes away from anything that that got us to this point, because everything that got us to this point, you're now going to take and you're going to move us forward. So, you know, have a respect for the for what came before, embrace it and help move it along to the future. 
Uh, sage advice, Jim. Sage advice. Great stuff. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to this edition of the Mixing Light Colors Profile Series. Remember, you can subscribe to our RSS feed to stay up to date on the latest episodes. So, for MixingLight.com, I'm Robbie Carmen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>